0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. We've got a great show coming up. But before we start, remember, for all the news that you need to know, go to thenation.com. Nobody owns The Nation, and that's why The Nation isn't owned. Also, you got to check out this podcast I'm listening to by Jeff Zinn called Gurus, the story of acting from Stanislavski to secession. It's available for listening wherever you get your podcasts, but enough of my yapping, let's start the show. Hoops legend, Shamikwa Holds Claw, Abdullah Al-Aryan who wrote the book about soccer in the Middle East. I got things to say about the US women's national team and their loss and why people on the right are celebrating it, but you gotta stay tuned. Edge of Sports, it's on now.
1: A champion is bred from hard times, scarred minds, standing on the ledge. The squad grind all time, victory in spite of opposition. Welcome to competition. You pick a side, I pick a side, they kick a side. Take a knee against abuse, they rather you die, push through dark tunnels. Trying to shed light, the fight is on. The moment we enter the game of life, get it right. Before the whole thing gone dead, let's go ahead and take it there. Meet me on the edge.
0: Welcome to Edge of Sports, the TV show only on The Real News Network. I'm Dave Zirin, and this week we've got another legend for you, one of the great hoopsters of all time. You may remember her from the NCAA championships at the University of Tennessee, and from racking up enough individual honors to fill a closet. You may remember her iconic cover on Slam Magazine in a Knicks uniform. You may remember her from the WNBA, and you may know about her heroic mental health advocacy. I'm talking about the great Shamikwa Holdsclaw. Also, I've got some choice words about the gleeful response by the so-called Patriots on the political right to the defeat of the U.S. women's national soccer team. We're calling it reactionary defeatism. And lastly, in our recurring segment, Ask a Sports Scholar, I've got the great Professor Abdullah Alarian, whose book, Football in the Middle East: State Society and the Beautiful Game, is a must-read for all sports fans. But first, let's talk to the one and only Shemequa Holdsclaw. Shemequa Holdsclaw, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: This is just something I've always wanted to ask you. You've done so much on and off the court. What fills you with the most pride when you sit back and look back at your journey?
1: Wow, what fills me with the most pride? Um, I would just say the fact that, you know, I've been able to overcome. Find balance, find happiness, um, contribute to others' happiness in, in a positive way, um, and bring people together. You know, bring people together with with love, with great en- energy. Because um, I've really realized that there was a divide a lot of times mm. because <clears throat> people don't necessarily interact in other people's neighborhoods or things they think is so different. You know, everybody's so different. Oh my God, New Yorkers are this way, mm. Tennesseans are this way. But honestly, when you uncover it all. We're all going through the same things. Uh, We're all more connected than we will ever know. So I've just enjoyed being able to sort of like bridge that gap in my own way.
0: Wow. You know, Mm -hmm. you came forward about mental health, Mm -hmm. mental health challenges, when really no one in the sports world was taking that step. It was still seen as something that one just did not discuss. Mm -hmm. You wrote about it. You were the subject and, and creator of a superb documentary called Mind Game the unquiet journey of Shamiqua Holds Claw, and I just had to ask you: Was there a fear factor involved for you as a uh, public figure in coming forward?
1: Was there a fear factor? Um, of course, you know. Um, mm. Yes, being a public figure, but you gotta think about it too. You know, just culturally. You know, I, I was always told like things that happen in my household, you know, stays in my household. You know, we're of uh, people that overcome, you know, through our faith um, in the church. So. You know, you put your head down and you push through it, but that pushing through um, really wasn't helping me. Then on the flip side, you have being a high level athlete. You know, Um, since I was younger, it's um, surround yourself with the right people, um, stay on course, do the right thing. And when that kind of started to unravel a little bit, um, there was a a fear, fear of being judged, a fear of, you know, not being looked at as this, um, you know, strong woman who's overcome, you, you know, um, you know, from her life in New York to go to Tennessee, to be a champion, um, to have to reveal there's like kinks in the armor, it's, 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 it's very fearful.
0: Yeah, but then subsequently after you came forward, there were players like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan, the great tennis star, uh, Naomi Osaka. I mean, I could go on and on of top athletes who step forward to say this is not a weak, this is not a weakness mm-hmm. and we need to break the stigmas How, was that gratifying for you or like what what was the emotional response for you when you were like oh wow i yes. actually started something
1: babe <laughs> i was like finally this is a, it's amazing cuz the thing about it you know whether it's a high level performing individuals whether it's business sports entertainment um you have to learn that you have have to protect yourself and you have to learn the power of your voice and not be afraid because of corporations and business to take care of you so from Osaka to Love to DeRozan you know all the athletes just so brave I was just really excited about the cultural shift because with social media social media helps a lot because a lot of these young kids they'll know you know they may not know anything about basketball but they'll know who a Selena Gomez is because I, I guess at one time she was like the most followed person on Instagram. So when you have, you know, eight year eight year old kids or whatever, like yes, yeah, Selena Gomez, um, had to go get help because she was depressed. Because and I'm like, wow, like times are changing, and so now people see other people speaking out. Um, they can connect to those people or some in some cases, you know, they relate to them, and that empowers them to to want to be better and to get the help that they need.
0: Mm, you know you're inspiring me to ask this question in this particular way I had a rough morning mm-hmm. uh between my years and I'm usually pretty steady this morning not the case for a host of reasons I won't share with you mm-hmm. what's your process when you feel challenged
1: oh my god I and, then, and again you know a uh, shout out to to all the the parents out there mm. <laughs> because as you know, it's not like an easy job. And until you kind of like gone through it yourself, you, you realize that. So for me, every morning when I wake up, it's like, how can I be the best for my for my wife and for my kids? Cause I'm human, you know, I have emotions like you says, or, you know, you may get some news and it kind of knocks you off. Um, my, my process is, you know, I, I pray. Mm. Um, I have to have quiet time. When something hits me, um, I'll just tell my wife, hey, I'm going for a walk. Um, I like to listen to nature sounds, you know, mm. like I'm big into the sound machine. And if it's something that I really need to get off my chest, you know, um, cause a part of me, I was like, I have this introverted side and I know when I was really, really hammered down by my challenges, I didn't like, I wasn't able to talk to my friends about it or my, or my family. I just kind of like stuffed my feelings and emotions over the years um talking about this topic and educating my friends they're just a great support my family and friends so sometimes you know i may walk and i need to call a friend and i need to like decompress and to know that i have that you know i have somebody that's going to listen to me and support me and not necessarily tell me what i should do just really listening you know because at the end of the day i think a lot of people know which direction they want to go they just they just need to get stuff off their chest and so mm. I'm, I'm grateful um, just to have different tools that um, have uh, allowed me to be in a better place as far as my mental health.
0: Wow, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I was talking with our mutual friend, Etan Thomas, I'll never forget years ago, mm-hmm. about you. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, wow, Shemequa holds Holdsclaw, doing this as a top level pro athlete coming forward, that takes courage. And Etan looked at me for a long moment and he says, it also takes courage to come at this from the black community and speaking oh. about mental health. And I'm obviously in no place to ask this question, yeah. but from through a ton I shall ask this question is, does that present a, a, a challenge that we collectively need to be aware of?
1: Oh, definitely. Um... Especially like where where I'm from, you know, this is I can only speak to my journey, you know, growing growing up. I'm going to live with my grandmother at 11 and living in the the housing um, projects here in Astoria. You know, mm-hmm. um, it was it's it's like you don't have those conversations. Like I said, you just got to put put your head down and push through things. And you got people really, or some people living paycheck to paycheck, um, you know, issues at, at their jobs, just really trying to be better parents, trying to be pe- better people. And they feel like society is, is like coming at them so from so many different angles and they don't have time to like mm. breathe. Uh, you know, to say, oh, I need to go to therapy. Can we, they afford therapy? It's so expensive, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you have like a lot of, this stuff you just put your head and you you deal with it or you go to church and you, you try to pray it away pray it away so many people told me that uh, the stuff that i've in, encountered you know oh in the church um you know people oh that's that girl that bipolar girl and hmm. I, yes dave i've heard this about myself from you know someone in the church because when i when i went through my second episode i really felt like i had to work this process myself. I I felt like I had friends and support in my corner, but I had to go through this healing. And it was really like my faith that helped me through. A lot of people don't know, and I probably haven't shared this too much. I I don't think I probably even shared this, but I was in church. Like I would go to church on the weekends, but it was like Saturday service. I was there Saturday, Sunday, and I was there for the service during the week because I felt like that was the only way for me to get through. But it's disheartening when you hear, you know, people in the church, like kind of putting you down, like this is a place for healing, right? The mm-hmm. <laughs> community. So, um, without going too far off, we just have to have those um, spaces. You know, it was always counseling and churches for finances, right? Marriage counseling. And so now, you know, the last 15 years, most, um, Places of worship have a place where people can get counseling to be better because a lot of people suffer from seasonal, um, you'll say seasonal depression or something. Um, I know on the West Coast, uh, Portland, Seattle it's a big thing, but I know you know it gets gray out, you know, snowing. Everybody's spirit gets a little down. It's when that doesn't go away, you know, when that doesn't go away and it's affecting your work, it's affecting your family life or whatever. You have to take that step to say, mm-hmm. hey, I need help. But it's this great to see for people of color that th- that place now is in a church, you know. And not to get discouraged because um, that I never I never forget that day. I don't want to say where what church I was at, but I just felt like boom, and I ran away. And I I called my mother. I was like, I'm never going there again. You know, this lady said that, and she's like, you know what? You can't let other people affect your peace. My mother said this, and and I was like, what are you saying? She goes. No, you you go back and you continue to stay steadfast and continue to encourage others because this is you know the this is your God doing work in your life and and she was right and I went back and I shared his story and I'm like listen we got to come together in places where there's a lot of us help people through their challenges and, and, and difficulties. Um, one thing that I would say like really opened my eyes was I met a man and you know, good job, whatever. And it's a black black gentleman. And he was just like telling me about his challenges. He could uh, identify um, with some things I was going through and he had been in the military and stuff. And he goes, man, just, I can't even, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to um, ask for help. He's like, my job offers therapy, but I'm afraid if they find out my, my employer that I'm using the services that they'll just judge me. So I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, so, all this stuff that you told me, the different trauma you experienced, you're afraid to be better because of what other people (laughs) are gonna say and do. And I looked at him and I was like, man, you gotta knock down that door. You gotta take that that, that step. And he's just like, I gotta provide for my daughter and stuff. Man, I was like, you gotta forget that. You gotta be the best you because right now you're not bringing that to your daughter. You're not bringing that to, to your wife. The world is already a heavy place for a man of color anyway. And fast forward, this is probably, I think it's like 10 10 years ago, me and this gentleman had this conversation and through social media and stuff, we stayed in contact and the therapy has changed his his life. Wow. You know, so-
0: That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. You know, right now, as we have this conversation, we're dealing with what's been described as a youth mental health crisis, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, although I think it precedes that. you know, when you were young, you're a New York City high school phenom, Christ the King, four yep. straight New York State championships. Right. Amazing, <laughs> something we still talk about in NYC. Right. right. Uh, had mental health challenges surfaced for you during that time of such glory? And what advice do you have for the youth dealing with this?
1: Wow. I Yes, I, I started dealing, experiencing challenges when I was like 11 or 12 years old. and okay. My grandmother did try to attempt to get me some help and understanding. But, you know, you hear those things, right? Like, oh, what happens in your house stays in your household. Then you're taking me to the community center where I met by uh, a white gentleman who I feel like I'm looking around. There's not many white people in this community mm. and now they want me to like open up and, and share and talk to them. And at a young age, I didn't feel like safe in that in that right. space. And you know, I learned to just sports at that time was really becoming a big thing in my life. And so I learned to just put my energy um, into that, you know, to, to work hard. Cause if you start to see like all these amazing male players at the time in New York City, you see the, the Bobby Knights, um, you see uh, Coach Kay's coming to New York and you get the like witness that I'm like, oh my God, one day I want that to happen. So I felt like sports could change, could change my life as it did, but High school, I, I was going through a lot. My mom, you know, she was in and out of rehab for for drinking and, you know, showing up um, intoxicated at my games. And I was really embarrassed, but like, just, it was like traumatic for me emotionally. All that time, no one ever asked me, um, hey, you know, do you want to talk about this? Um, none of none of my coaches because it it was like I was a talent and it was like when I kicked the garbage can and I'm upset it was just like everyone stroking the shoulder um, I call it the coach mentality whenever you're good at something and people see that you know whether it's music art whatever they kind of want to put you on this path and massage you you know <laughs> mm-hmm. and you can't that's something that you gotta. People, you got to get out of it. So I love now how, yes, New York is still, in my opinion, the mecca of basketball, but all these summer activities and things, these shoe companies are putting on here in New York is great that a lot of them are adding the wellness component, you know, Um, a lot of coaches now are doing like mental health uh, first aid, you know, so they can understand how to address these young people. So I I, I love it. Um, And I love how things are, you know, just moving forward.
0: Mm. You know, describing your high school years, it just is making me feel how heroic it was for you to say, "I'm going to Knoxville,"
1: <laughs> for all
0: the culture shock issues that would inevitably come up going to small town Tennessee. Uh, how, and, but but then freshman year, you're dominating. So how difficult? But also, we can't look at athletics as the indicator for how somebody's doing either. So how 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 difficult was the transition and? you know you're you're being coached by one of the greatest ever in Pat Summit. Right. how, but who's also, of course, very demanding, very old school, very serious. how How yeah. did that translate for you, given what was going on internally?
1: Um, I felt like um Coach Summit, like amazing coach, right? Like, amazing, successful, but even better person. And I was really thankful for the mentorship and the friendship, you know, Like she was an extension of my grandmother, helped me navigate things when I came forward with her um, regarding my mental health. But again, you're young, right? You're young. Um, none of my parents or whatever they, they went to college, uh, like two year schools. They know, they didn't know what it was like going, no one prepared me for going to a big university. <laughs> Even though I had like a lot of, um. you know, I went to Christ the King. So you had a lot of kids that went on to college or whatever, but I don't know. I, I don't think I was really knew what I was getting into and to go there. And it was it was it was a cultural culture shock. I, I was used to so much diversity, you know. I had friends all different religions, all different backgrounds, and you know the the train accessibility. And here was like plot, you know, you're on this campus, and you really are trying to navigate to find your tribe. And you know, I'm like, oh man, these people talk too slow. They're telling me I talk too fast. But Coach Summit understood. Um, she she you know she'd been coaching at that time for twenty something years she understood how to bring together sisterhood and community. And she just told me my grandmother to be patient because I wanted to transfer. You're young, you're like, I'm out of here. This doesn't feel comfortable, right? And I'm glad that she taught me a good lesson. Like, you know, you got to work the process, you know, don't quit, like work the process. And I think a lot of who, how she dealt with me has really helped me in my life through challenges because yes, life is hard. You're gonna sometimes be, an uncommon ground, but you you have different skill sets. where she's always like you're great with people. Um, people are gonna gonna love you. You're great at bringing community together, and so those are your strengths. You know, she wanted me to understand who I was because I was shy. I was so shy. I was just like kind of like head down, pressing along. But it was all these big feelings and emotions inside. And when she allowed me to be me, she would ask me how I'm feeling. I can talk. I felt safe um it really like started to change change for me and understanding like i was a leader understanding like this is different but i can talk about it i can talk about the things that uh make me feel awkward here you know <laughs> like i didn't like country music i said that one time i didn't you know i now i'm older right i was like 18 years old and they asked me like they were like do you like country music on a on a, on a station and i was like no i don't like country music do you know like i was like attacked <laughs> <laughs> these people are writing in and saying <laughs> how, i dare her dare her, her say that but again i was not exposed to that right sure so, you know being able to like just grow and 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 find your place and you know it was an education um for me to understand a southern way of things and for other people to understand like how I grew up, you know
0: mm. do you go back to Knoxville sometimes?
1: Yes, I go back to it's, what's it's that not, like for you? Look, Dave, it's not just Knoxville. it's Knox Vegas
0: <laughs> Knox Vegas, yes
1: <laughs> um it's It's great, just to see like how how much things have grown. um and it's just it's about the young people, you know, um, our pro- we have a program, right? And is this they know, like who the pioneers were. They know. Um, a lot of these young ladies, they didn't know they don't know who Pat Summit is, right? Like some mm-hmm. of the younger kids, you know. But it's just like great, you know, the kids that come there doing their homework, just being respectful, um, seeing how, for me, seeing how the facilities have grown. Like this college now is it was big business we thought before is big business now. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know just seeing the young ladies you know have that um opportunity to um compete as collegiate athletes to be rewarded in a way they've never been um, rewarded before with the nil stuff um to go back and to see how my 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 um, stadium thompson bowling arena excuse me arena is like so amazing i mean they have suites now you got wow. you get sweet it, it's it's like Amazing, but I have a lot of pride because those people like through challenges through life, they've always like had my back. Like there's really awesome people. Um, My college teammate, Kelly Jolly, my point guard is actually the head coach there now. So that's awesome. I I would say Tennessee, we tend to keep it in the family, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Before you go, I got to ask you just a couple of hoops questions. All right, cool. Because women's hoops is exploding like never before, particularly at the NCAA level. You laid the basis for everything we're seeing in 2023, what player or team gets you hyped?
1: Oh my God. Oh, um, we want to start with Collegian first?
0: We Hey, wherever you want to start.
1: Man, okay. Like I, I love, I just love the confidence of the young ladies from LSU. Like I, mm. I love it, you know, because for so long, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed like men after a game, a lot of times they'll just, you know, peace and keep walking. But it was always like an expectation for the women to like shake hands and, Mm -hmm. you know, be the good girls. And we can't show our toughness or we're acting like a boy or whatever, but like to see these young ladies claim their space, you know, like, yes, I'm gonna talk trash too, because I'm, I'm telling you growing up, man, I had to like talk so much. And then you're like, the camera's on you and it's like, handle yourself a certain way. I love them being able to authentically express like who they are. To share their journey, like Andrew Reese said, I'm from Baltimore. <laughs> and again, she said it with the the Baltimore accent. I'm not quite getting it, but saying, we talk trash everywhere. Now I've been to Baltimore. I'm sure you have too. And it's just like, oh, oh we're I recording
0: from Baltimore. okay. okay,
1: <laughs> okay, awesome. So I'm like, oh, I get it. I, I can I can identify with this young lady's journey. And then just seeing how it's um grown, I mean, just, most viewership ever, so I would say Angel Reese. I like the young lady Caitlin. I'll be excited to see what she does on, on the next level, professional wise. Oh man, it's just so many amazing players. You know, uh, my wife's favorite player is Della Don, and so I got sure. a funny I got a funny story. So we actually watched the DC games or whatever. And my son, it was it was uh, last year, so he's about two years old at the time. So he watches. He's watching. So I go to I go to meet the team. And he's with me and you know we circle do the circle introduce yourself to everybody he runs up to Del- deladon and he's just like and she picks him up because he remembered who she was <laughs> that it, it, is sweet yeah so deladon um asia asia, asia wilson asia mm-hmm. wilson um those are kind of like my 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 two favorite players also
0: awesome that's your go-to and yes. yeah how would you do in today's wmba and would your style of play be any different
1: oh man uh oh yeah i i I would i would crush it (laughs) (laughs) um you know my my style i feel like i i was like one of the first like big guards you know that Mm -hmm. could put the ball on the floor athleticism um could handle the the basketball so i think my game would like translate really well um yeah because i i understood like Um, you know, how to get to the basket um, and and pass, but it would just be different now because the the fun part of being different is that, man, I would probably be going up against more women my size Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the position. Because for me, I was always one of the the bigger ones playing the the three slot. So I had like a really good post-up game. I could take advantage of that. But um, I realized the game changed um, probably 2010. It was my last season. And I was a San Antonio and I'm facing Candace Parker, my fellow uh, Tennessee alumni. And um, she caught the ball and I'm I'm, like behind her. And next thing you know, before I could like blink, she had gone around me and scored. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, the game has changed, the athleticism, you know?
0: No volunteer love on that play. (laughs) Uh, I I think you'd be like Brianna Stewart with a jet pack. That's how I picture you in today's game.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah uh, I, man, she's she's an amazing player I um I ran into her I went to the uh, Brooklyn library the other day with my other friend from Yukon to see the um Jay-z ex uh, exhibition and I come outside. she's talking about it. It, it it was it was amazing um I come outside and she's there so we were all uh chopping it up that's amazing what
0: what 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 a window into uh, a day in the life in Brooklyn
1: <laughs> just, just
0: Brianna Stewart and Jimmy Gold's called Chopping it up at the Jay-Z exhibit. You know, how can people keep up with you? And th- thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you, Dave. I'm keeping up with me. Whoa, my God. I keep a low social uh, profile, but um, I would say uh, Instagram, I'm trying to get better to post uh, uh, about my, um, you know, when I'm out speaking or, you know, with my family to share, you know, what I'm doing. So my Instagram is C-H-O-L-D-1. Mm -hmm. And if you need me otherwise, you can find Tandem Sports in the Washington, D.C. area. And I work with them, um, you know, Lon Babby and then Jim Tanner took over. So I've been with them since 99. So it's like family. So you can always contact them if you need me.
0: (laughs) Shamequa Holds-Claw, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Really appreciate it.
1: Uh, Thanks, Dave. You take care of yourself. Enjoy the rest of your summer.
0: And now some choice words. Okay, look, in left politics, there is a philosophy called revolutionary defeatism. It means calling for your own country to lose when engaging in an imperialist war. Such a call, never popular, is essential towards the task of building internationalism and fighting the thirst for conquest. It's a noble call whose root lies in the desire to end human suffering. Well, in the U.S. of A right now, we are seeing something that I think is best described as reactionary defeatism. This is the call for the United States to lose in its various rivalries with other countries, but not out of some thirst to end nationalism or war, not at all. Instead, this twisted and bizarrely fantastical view is that the United States has given too many rights to too many people, and we are now, as a result, losers. For them, this country like Germany in the 1920s before the rise of the Nazis, represents a hedonistic hellscape and any humiliation on the world stage is not only welcome, it is to be cheered. Reactionary defeatism was on full display when the United States women's national team was bounced from the 2023 World Cup. Their loss was surprising, but not necessarily shocking. While the US was going for its unprecedented third straight World Cup, Many other countries have made giant strides in their development of women's soccer, reaching and training players beyond the middle-class pipeline that dominates in the United States. Also, our team was an uneasy mix of experience and youth, and their coach, Vlatko Andonovski engaged in substitution patterns best described as bewildering. So they lost. Not expected, but it happens. But in the aftermath, What has both surprised and shocked many, although this has been brewing for some time, is the utter glee with which this country's reactionary right wing has responded. They have acted like the ouster of the US women was greater than if the Super Bowl was held on Christmas Day. Many commentators on the mainstream sports channels have actually struggled to explain why a section of this country, led by a vocally joyous Donald Trump, cheered their defeat. Many of the same patriotic souls who wanted Colin Kaepernick and USWNT icon Megan Rapinoe destroyed for kneeling during the anthem in 2016 loved seeing the red, white, and blue go down. Look, there is much to unpack here in this backwards exercise of reactionary defeatism beyond the obvious that politics clearly no longer stop at the water's edge. The anger we are told by the Fox News commentators and the centrist press, is because the team is polarizing as a result of being too woke. Although no one seems able to say just exactly what that means. Beneath the buzzwords, the hatred comes down to two things, both equally stupid. The first is that they can't stand Rapino and assume that the team is made up with a bunch of Rapino carbon copies, an absurd charge if you know anything about the actual human beings that played on this team. They also can't stand, although they won't say it explicitly, choosing in cowardly fashion to hide behind that word woke, that this team organized and won equal pay. Equal pay they more than deserved by any metric. The U.S. Women's National Team is the most successful, popular soccer squad this country has ever produced. And at minimum, they deserved parity in their compensation. Their great sin when you dig in is that these are women who refuse to be controlled and sit in the corner. Because of that, Donald Trump, an abuser and assaulter of women, finds them intolerable. His followers are along for the ride because it valorizes their misogyny. Yet their joy at seeing the women fail also destroys a central right-wing election talking point. The GOP is openly running against transgender existence by saying that they will, quote, protect women's sports from biological males. But here they are mocking women athletes and cheering their loss. They have revealed themselves. They don't wanna protect women's sports. They hate women's sports because if we want to get real, they hate women, or at the very least women who dare not know their place. The US Women's National Team and especially the legendary Rapino do not need the support of parasitical hypocrites who only care about women's sports if it advances their cause to eradicate trans kids. But this is what reactionary defeatism is all about. They want the United States team to lose because they want to divide and demoralize people as part of an effort to radically remake this country. They want the United States to lose because they want everything Megan Rapino, female, queer, anti-racist, pro-choice, outspoken, everything that Megan Rapinoe represents, they want it to wither away. But they don't realize Megan has an army and it's an army that win or lose will not be marching backwards. (laughs) Professor Abdullah al arian thank you so much for joining us, sir.
2: Good to be here.
0: So Professor al arian usually, On the show, we have people who dedicate their whole lives to the study of sports. Your academic history is so much more eclectic than just sports, and yet you focused on editing and writing this volume, Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. Why did you choose that to be your project?
2: I mean, for one thing, I I think just being a fan of the game as somebody who's been watching it my entire life, but especially recently seeing the kind of the intersections, I I mean, in a lot of ways, following kind of in your footsteps, Dave, with with seeing the intersections of sports and politics, seeing the way that it affects, uh, you know, societies in this region in the same way that you've studied it in, you know, in the United States and elsewhere. So I think that there was certainly Uh, a poll there for for me and for many of the researchers and scholars who kind of contributed to this this volume um who've kind of seen the same thing that this is not just a a game or not just a sport but something that actually has a, a much deeper impact in society and so it connects in a lot of ways to the the bigger questions that i've been looking at you know my whole life going back to kind of my days as a as a phd student which is thinking about social movements thinking about change um thinking about challenges to the You know, the kind of the hegemonic or powerful orders that that govern um, states and societies uh, in this region.
0: Mm. Over a decade ago, we had what is called the Arab Spring. How much did the Arab Spring affect or shape your thoughts about pursuing this book?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I was actually in the middle of writing my PhD dissertation at the time that the protests broke out, I was uh, conducting a lot of my fieldwork in Egypt at the time, but of course, I was watching those events like everybody else, you know, unfolding on on the news and on uh, social media, like in real time. And one of the things that we noted at the time was the impact that Uh, organized groups that were not necessarily seen as politicized beforehand, right? So we're not just talking about groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, who everybody, of course, expected to kind of step into the breach that was left behind by these, you know, secular dictatorships, but really thinking about uh, other kinds of social uh, collectivities, things like football ultras, right? So the fan groups that usually had kind of a space to gather and to mobilize in support of their favorite team they would gather in stadiums they would rally around kind of like the equivalent of tailgating i guess in the us where they would sort of rally and gather in public spaces ahead of games after games um and the way that they mobilized in the service of a budding revolution i think was something that a lot of people took note of at the time Um, And it's only it's taken kind of a decade to really think about maybe some of the long term impact of that, which is the way that even cultural forces can offer avenues by which people can try to impact change uh, within their own societies. And so I think, you know, that um, among many other kind of factors, um, you know, helped us look at at kind of what are the impact that fan groups or these ultras uh, can have. And I think it's it's quite the statement when you actually look at what's going on in Egypt now, which, of course, had a military coup in 2013 so now we're actually a decade on from the end of that short-lived revolution to one of the most repressive systems Mm -hmm. uh, really anywhere in the region right now and it's a testament to the role that those football ultras had that they were permanently disbanded as soon as the coup took power and in fact uh, fans were banned from stadiums until 2018 but even to this day fan groups as a collectivity as an organized force are not allowed uh, to attend matches. And so I think that says a lot about the regime's continued fear, even of just, uh, you know, ordinary kind of football fans in terms of the impact that they could possibly have in challenging the power of this regime.
0: Well, if someone had said fan groups for anywhere in the world, frankly, before the Arab spring, you know, you imagine, uh, fights, you imagine a lot of interseen battles. And some of the ugliest examples, uh, you know, at the former Yugoslavia, you, you even saw them activated for highly reactionary ends. How much did it surprise, shock, invigorate you to see these clubs actually come into their own politically in Tahrir Square? And then, of course, the regime, as you said, were very aware of their political import to the upheaval.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, there's, there's so many different elements to it. On the one hand, of course, it's the idea that you can translate things that are effectively just an expression of of kind of fan support, right? So we've seen them, of course, fighting one another, right? Different fan groups. Unfortunately, it's an ugly side of the game that, that we've also kind of looked at, um, in terms of how fan groups interact and engage with each other, sometimes through violence, um, or through kind of these, these mobilized campaigns. But the way that then, all of those differences were set aside in the service of something bigger. And, and, you know, a lot of their interactions previously in terms of dealing with police brutality, dealing with the kind of the crackdowns, dealing with even the infiltration of their groups by uh, undercover uh, police operatives, all of that kind of came into play in terms of them being more seasoned, more experienced in confronting a lot of those same things as they were unfolding in those, you know, those critical moments and weeks uh, leading to the overthrow of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. But even later, so years later in a place like Algeria, when you had a similar kind of campaign emerge, one of the interesting things is that a lot of the football fan culture was universalized. That So it wasn't any longer about just a few groups. It was actually about taking kind of some of the fan chants and repurposing them against, you know, an aging dictator who was trying to run for his like fifth or sixth presidential term. Um, and trying to get him to step down. This was an aging president who hadn't even been seen in public. In fact, when all of the politicians came to profess their fealty to him, they did it to a portrait of him because the real version was, was simply incapacitated. And okay. so this is the kind of thing that, that you know the fans were protesting against, many of them, of course, being really young um, and not having known a single other political alternative throughout their entire lives. Um, And so we saw even the TIFO displays, these are those like massive banners that are usually unfurled like in a stadium in in the beginning stages of a match, and yet we saw them in the public squares. We saw the same kind of graffiti and street art of the songs that were repurposed, all of them kind of taking things that were very much a part of, you know, football fandom and then translating them into things that would be seen as kind of protest uh, art and protest uh, expressions. You know, it's impossible
0: to speak about the Middle East monolithically, as you well know, Uh, but we're also doing this interview in the immediate aftermath of of the Women's World Cup. That's when we're airing right now. And so even though we can't speak about the Middle East as as a one thing, where are we
2: with the development of the women's game in the region? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it certainly has a long way to go with uh, in comparison to what we've seen globally. Um, I will say, you know, I think it's been really fun seeing yet again, another Moroccan national team kind of uh, (laughs) exceed all expectations. So I think that was really thrilling, not just obviously for Morocco, but for people across this region who now see specifically, you know, an opportunity um, for the national team uh, of women, the women's national team kind of make, make its own um you know impact in an international tournament and so I think you know despite the the defeat to France again another defeat to France the same as as the men suffered in the semi-final um in the last uh, men's World Cup that we still see I think tremendous momentum um I think there were a lot of incredible stories about different members of the team you know seeing profiles of them of course you had that story about the first woman in hijab being allowed to compete something that wasn't previously allowed Um, and is still not allowed in most of the European domestic leagues, especially in France. So I think there are a number of kind of important impact statements there. And at the same time, of course, there's still quite a long way to go when we think about, you know, what's been happening in Saudi Arabia, where the men's game has has been kind of taken off in part artificially through this kind of massive injection of hundreds of millions of dollars at the same time that they've kind of announced the establishment of a women's national team. um, But that hasn't really seen the same kind of impact.
0: Mm. Yeah. As we look
2: around the Middle East, uh, my eyes
0: often turn to Palestine. Uh, What role does soccer play? And can we look at it differently or judge it differently, whether in Gaza or the West Bank?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it obviously has a really deep uh, and rich history there that goes back decades really to the era of British colonial rule. The same way it was kind of introduced in much of this region was through the era of colonialism, whether by the British or the French. In the case of Palestine, it was the British who established the earliest leagues, Um, and it's been part and and parcel of Palestinian society in the face of kind of all of the, uh, you know, various challenges that they faced from obviously the denial of their own national rights to their being subjugated under both, you know, ethnic cleansing to the apartheid regime and occupation that are currently reigning over. Um, you know, over all of these territories. And so in that sense, the obstacles that they face have been tremendous from even fielding a national team, right? Not being able to even have practices of players who are based in Gaza, who are basically in in what is effectively an open-air prison where they're not allowed to leave to the West Bank, which of course um, is completely cut off through the series of checkpoints that make it almost impossible to be able to like organize in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and so we're seeing a national team that really doesn't have Uh, any of the kind of the facilities let alone um, even the kind of freedom of movement that's necessary to be able to actually compete and yet at the same time there's still a team it still competes Uh, it's often been hosted in foreign stadiums in the event that that some of the players can get clearance to travel Um, and i think it continues to exist as kind of a symbol of some of the um, you know forms of resistance and mobilization against the occupation um as, as in terms of when you actually see it compete quite often even in stadiums where they're competing against the home team that you'll actually see the whole that that most of the home fans are cheering on the palestinian team because of what that signifies we saw lots of outpouring of support uh throughout the world cup i mean they were kind of um you know unofficially maybe the 33rd team at the last mm-hmm. world cup in part because it was held in the region and so you saw the crowds you know, coming in and waving their Palestinian flags in part as a means of of demonstrating that kind of solidarity for a team um, that doesn't really have the same kinds of of opportunities uh, as many of the others.
0: The World Cup in Qatar was, of course, held up to tremendous criticism in terms how it was organized, the labor issues, everything. I also feel like those of us, myself included, who looked at it through that lens missed part of the story. What did it mean to have the World Cup in Qatar?
2: Well, I mean, I think for for one thing, certainly uh, a lot of those those criticisms were definitely justified and very much part of the story. Right. So there's there's certainly questions about, um, you know, how do you reconcile what it means for populations in a region that clearly has an immense passion for the game and sees it as an outlet to mobilize in part, as I mentioned, um, in, in opportunities that don't really exist quite often and at the same time reconciling that with some of the um, serious questions that it ultimately raised. And I think, you know, there was an attempt to try to kind of draw that that balance in a way by recognizing what this means for people locally in this region, people who are um, given an opportunity to travel to a World Cup that may never come again when we consider the fact that the next World Cup is in the U.S., Canada, Mexico. Um, You know, with the U.S., we know everything about the immigration policies there and what it means, you know, for fans, let's say, from Iran. Um, Let Mm -hmm. alone, you know, maybe from some of the other countries in the region that wouldn't be able necessarily to cheer on their own, their own teams. And I think also, um, you know, seeing the kind of the cross national solidarities, I mean, I think that was one of the most incredible things was the way in which people kind of really connected over football by being able to kind of, you know, bandwagoning, I know is usually seen as Mm -hmm. as a pejorative in this sense, I think it was actually really quite a quite a, you know, a scene to see everybody kind of getting behind Morocco, right? So they were kind of the last team from this region that were still in it. Um, And everybody kind of, you know, picking up the Morocco colors and going to their matches. And those were some of the most incredible scenes that I've seen in addition to, of course, like I said, the solidarity that was expressed um, with Palestine at every single match really from from beginning to end um, in a way that again, would probably be much more um, you know, confronting a a, a kind of a clampdown in any other circumstance. But in this case, it seemed to actually, um, you know, be given that sort of space. And I think the real questions that it poses in the end is sort of what is the takeaway? What is, what is going to be the long-term, um, you know, impact of this type of mobilization? Is it just a one-off thing that happens because you've got this major tournament here? Or is it the building of solidarities and networks and identities um, that are likely to sustain into the future. And so I think there's certainly a lot of hope that that's, that's where this goes.
0: Mm. You've been so generous with, with your time, Professor. Just, just a couple more questions. Uh, is there a program, a soccer program, that we should keep our eye on for reasons political or reasons on the pitch that maybe we're, we're not looking at right now in the Middle East?
2: Well, I mean, I think you know everyone's talking about it, so it it deserves mention. But I think what the, what the state of Saudi Arabia is doing certainly deserves um, more scrutiny than it's probably getting. Um, I think obviously, when you see major players, not just Cristiano Ronaldo, but then this past summer, everyone from Karim Benzema to N'Golo Kanté to Sadio Mane to many many others who've all decided to leave behind careers. In some cases, these are players who are in their peak. To go to sign for a league that nobody has ever heard of that nobody watches, um, you know, for and making 10 times the salaries that they were getting before. I mean, it could be a flash in the pan thing we saw it in China, I think about a decade ago where they tried to kind of make this huge splash on the global soccer market, you know, buying all these players bringing them to China to play and then it sort of fizzled. Um, The Saudis, of course, are saying that that's not what's happening here and that this is part of a long-term strategic plan to diversify all of that that oil revenue into, Mm -hmm. um, you know, these big projects. And, of course, when you deal in the realm of culture, there's a lot to be said about kind of what this means in terms of trying to, you know, sports wash potentially the reputation of a Saudi uh, crown prince who, of course, as we all very well know, has been responsible for so many Uh, atrocities uh, in the region and really beyond. And I think that this is really where um, the focus should be in terms of what this actually means, not just for the sport. And again, I think there is sometimes an unfair singling out what the Saudis are doing is in many ways a logical continuation of the corporatization of sports. Again, all the things that you've been writing about for so so many years, Dave, but thinking about the kind of the role of, of kind of these private equity firms in terms of what they're doing um, to sports and making it really out of reach from fans. And in this case, we're seeing it on a kind of a much more industrial scale. Um, and I think that's worth kind of keeping an eye on that, at least uh, going forward. Absolutely. Uh,
0: last thing, your next project, what should we be looking for?
2: <laughs> well, there's, there's a few things I'm working on, but a lot of it is kind of, you know, tangled with the same kinds of questions of dealing with social movements. So I'm looking at kind of the legacies of different religious activist trends across the Arab world, I will always continue to follow football and see kind of the impact that it's having in society. And so hopefully, there'll be other avenues uh, to continue the work that we've done with this book. Um, and thinking about kind of the role of, of culture, more generally, I know, you're a big film guy, Dave, I, I'm yeah. thinking a lot about uh, a course that I teach called Empire and film and thinking about ways to kind of be able to perhaps present that in, in book form, but that's kind of well into the future. Ah, Absolutely. My goodness. Where where do you even get started? I had
0: like five movies flicker through my head as soon as you said that. Um, Well, yeah, this has been terrific. Professor Abdullah Al-Aryan. The book is called Football in the Middle East, State Society and the Beautiful Game. It's a must read. Thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Well, that's all for this week's show. Thank you so much to Shamiqueal Holdsclaw. Thank you so much to Abdallah Arrian. Thank you to everybody on the staff here at the Real News Network. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. You're not going to believe next week's show. Just you wait. We are out of here. Peace. Thank you so much for watching the Real News Network, where we lift up the voices, stories, and struggles that you care about most. And we need your help to keep doing this work. So please, tap your screen now,
2: subscribe, and donate to The Real News Network. Solidarity forever.